subject of grace. We've, uh, you've heard me say it plenty of times. This is something I've been wanting to get into um, because uh, I believe that this message more so than ever uh, has been skewed and distorted in a great way. Um, that to the point that, you, you know, you understand that if you don't know the definition or the way God defines something or what God designed and intended for something to do and, and how it, he intended for it to operate, uh, you'll never be able to grasp all the benefits of it. Anything that we don't fully know, we can't fully use. So, uh, you know, if we don't know how to use something, then there's a couple things that happen. One is misuse of it. Um, and we have a term for that. We have a word for that. And it's called abuse. Right. You've heard me say plenty of times that when you don't know the purpose for something, or you don't know why you have something, then you abuse it. Abuse is inevitable. If you don't know why you own a gun, you will abuse the gun. If you don't know why you're in a marriage, you will abuse your spouse. If you don't know why you have children, you will abuse your children. If you don't know why you have a job, you will abuse your job. And what happens is, is we set expectations for things based upon our knowledge of it. But if we don't have the full or proper knowledge for it, then we're going to be disappointed because disappointment is the result of unmet expectations. When you set an expectation for something and the thing doesn't meet your expectations, you now enter into disappointment. And I believe there's a lot of people uh, in, in church. I'm not even talking about lost people. I'm talking about church people that are disappointed with grace in their lives. Because they don't know the proper definition. I'm going to tell you right now that the only definition that matters is God's definition. We got to understand this. The only definition that counts. I don't care how the world wants to term love. There's only one person that knows the true definition for love. God, because he is love. Everything he does is motivated by love. Amen. So if I want to really understand how love is to operate, I need to go to God, not let the world tell me what love looks like. Right. Love wants to tell you, well, if you really love me, you'll do this for me. But God says, I love you so much. I'm going to do this for you. Love is about what can I give away, not what can I get? God's love. And so we have allowed the world to redefine grace for us. We have let lost believers, what I mean by that is believers that don't want to know the whole truth, okay? Because truth comes with responsibility. When you learn the truth for something, now you're responsible for applying that. But even further than that, I believe that the number one message that the devil wants to skew and damage in the church today is the grace message. Because if you don't understand the true working of grace, then you will try to apply something that's not true to yourself and think you've got something when you really don't. Okay? And so we're going to take some time, line by line, step by step, to go through grace and what does God's grace and mercy look like. Because grace is not just something that covers something. OK, grace isn't just a bandaid like we like to think that I, I can go forward with doing this because of God's grace in my life. 
And so we misapply grace and we misuse grace. And the one thing that grace has come to conquer is really still reigning in our life. And you will find out throughout the next several weeks, and I encourage you to stay with us, um, it's going to start out a little bit hard. Uh, because the one reason why grace is even made available is because of a three-letter word that we don't really like to talk about that much, especially in church. And it's called sin. See, grace didn't come for you. It actually came to take care of sin. It didn't come to take care of you. It came to take care of sin. And grace didn't just come to take care of the consequence of sin. It came to take care of the sin itself. But, you know, even God's word says that people will sin and enjoy it for a while. And there are many things when you came to Christ that you're thinking, man, I want to get rid of that. I don't want that anymore. I, I don't I, I want to get rid of that. But there's also those things that when we came to Christ that we didn't want to get rid of. That we still need to get rid of. You maybe were ready to get rid of that alcohol addiction. Man, I don't want to be, I don't want that controlling me. But maybe you didn't want to get rid of the friends that you were around every time that happened. I mean, we, can we get real? If we can't get real, I can't get anywhere in this series. I'm just going to tell you. We're going to talk about cheap grace. We're just going to fall right back into cheap grace that doesn't do anything for you. Makes you feel good. Okay. Makes you feel good because I messed up last night, but I'm in church today and God's grace is available. But the problem is we're just repeating that cycle. Every Saturday we repeat the same cycle and every Sunday we repeat the cycle. And God's not pleased with that. I'm just going to let you know. Just going to let you know. But the exciting thing is that God made a way out. Not just a way out of hell. But a way out of sin. That's what's so exciting about it. Look at this in Romans chapter 5. This is going to kind of be our key verse throughout this series. Romans chapter 5, verse 17. Romans chapter 5, verse 17. In the New King James Version, it says this, and by the way, uh, we do have this message available on the Version app. If you have your phone or your iPad or whatever available, you can access that. Um, if you're utilizing the Wi-Fi here in the building, the passcode is AFCV, AFCV, Anchor Faith Church, Valdosta. Uh, you can access it that way. We've got a lot of verses that we're going to look at today. I've got some points that you're definitely going to want to look at and going to want to jot down if you're taking notes. Um, this is not a mess. I'll tell you right now, I think I believe right now in, in the day and age that we're in as a church, this grace message is forefront. This will set you free, whether you've been saved one day or whether you've been saved all your life. This will set, it set me free. I was raised in church, had a great home, great Christian home. But grace, not understanding grace will bind you up, will lock you up. Even though you're Christian, even though you are saved, sanctified, filled with the Holy Ghost, you can still be locked up and bound. And I want to set some people free, and I believe that this will. Look at this here in New King James Version. It says, For if by the one man's offense death reigned 
through the one. What does that mean? When Adam sinned, we all sinned. This is what that means. When Adam sinned, we all sinned. Much more, those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will what? Reign in life. Reign means to dominate, means to control, means to be in charge, means to have dominion. That's what reign means. In life. Through the one, Jesus Christ. Notice that grace is associated with reigning. And with being in control and with dominate. This is what grace is all about. Grace here is being associated with reigning in life. Look at this in the amplified version, if you will. For if because of one man's trespass, lapse, or offense, death reigned through that one. So there was something else that took control because of sin entering the world. But now because of grace entering, much more surely will those who receive God's overflowing grace, unmerited favor, and the free gift of righteousness, putting them into right standing with himself, reign as what? Kings. Kings. This is you and I. And this is now. Not when we get to heaven. This is now. You will reign as kings in this life through the one man, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. Grace operating in its fullness in your life will allow you to reign as a king in this life. I'm sad to say it's not quite the picture of the church today. And I believe that it's the misuse of grace that has weakened us. The very thing that can strengthen us in its understanding by not knowing everything about it has weakened the church. Look at this in the New Living Translation. For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many. That's how powerful sin is. Look, I'm not going to come up here and make sin look weak. I'm going to make it look weaker. But sin is powerful. That's why it requires such a powerful price. I mean, I hope seven days later we haven't forgotten what we celebrated last week. I hope not. I should be able to preach an Easter message every Sunday. He's alive, people. But the price that he paid to get there was great. Because sin was great. I'm not going to weaken and dumb down what sin is. It will rule. It will control. It will possess. And it will dominate if you let it. But here's the thing that I've learned in my Christian faith. Is that the devil needs permission to work in my life. I've found that out. Most Christians haven't discovered that. The world has definitely not discovered that. They think that they just have to live that way. And they think they're forced to live that way. But what I have come to find out is the devil only operates in areas in my life where I give him access. That's just something I've come to find out. 
that the only way he's allowed entrance into my life, believer or non-believer, is I allow him to. I've opened the door and said, come right in. If you don't believe me, we can go back to the book and you'll see that. The devil doesn't force himself anywhere. Well, the devil made me do it. Or I fell into sin. You didn't fall into nothing. You allowed it to take place. And we've got to understand this. Because if we don't understand sin, we won't understand grace. Today's message might be a little hard because we're going to talk about the three letter word that nobody wants to talk about. But we have to understand sin if I'm going to understand grace, because grace came to take care of sin. But if I don't understand how sin operates, then I won't understand how grace, how grace operates. Okay. So if I'm going to fully understand the work of grace, I must first recognize I have a need for it. Why do I have a need for it? Because through one man's offense, death reigned. One man's sin, all sin. Because of what one man did, we are all born into a sin nature, a sin consciousness. Therefore, every person ever born on this planet has had a need for grace. Period. Whether they know it or not, they need grace. Whether you know it or not, you need grace. You have to first realize that I have a need for grace before grace can even function and operate in my life. Nobody's above grace. Nobody is above the need for grace. Nobody is beyond the necessity of grace operating in your life. Why? Because you have sin in your life. And God doesn't like that. God doesn't like that sin is in your life. Now, as we always do, we got to go back to the beginning. Because... God's original intention is still God's intention. Let me say that again. God's original intention is still his intention. You've heard me say it a million times, but it's always worth repeating that we have to understand that the way God designed man in the beginning is still man's requirement today. And God has not changed his mind. God has not gone to plan B. He's still on plan A. So look at Genesis chapter 1 verse 21. We have to lay a foundation. You know me, I love to lay foundations. That's why, uh, you know, my series always end up going four, five, six, eight weeks long. Because you've got to lay foundation. This, we're going to go step by step. We may not get as preachy as we normally do on Sundays, but that's all right. Because there's got to be an understanding because where the lack of knowledge is, that's where you get defeated. And I'm tired of seeing Christians throw out statements like, well, there's grace. Or God's grace is great. And thank God for God's grace. And thank God for... And you don't even know what grace is doing in your life. You don't even know how it's functioning. 
how it operates. So Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them, everybody say, let them. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And we know it goes on. So God created man in his image, in his likeness to do what? Have dominion to rule. Well, doesn't that sound familiar? Didn't we just read a verse that said that grace has been given to us so we could rule? Grace is God's way of getting you back to Genesis 1.26. The reason why grace showed up is so that you could be in charge once again. Now, I know Especially in this area, we love to say God is in control. We love that statement. God is in control. Why? Because it relieves us of any responsibility in the earth today. It allows me to sit back, prop up my feet, have my backpack, sit in the, 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 the uh, terminal and wait for Jesus to part the clouds with his shining glory and take us all home. Because God is in control. I'm sick. Sickness is in my body and sickness is reigning. It's controlling. It's having dominion in my body. But God is in control. There's nothing I can do about it. It's not what my Bible says. God is in control. It's not even in the Bible. Well, it says God is sovereign. He absolutely is. That means when he makes a choice, nobody can change his mind. Okay? God is sovereign. Absolutely. But God has already made the decision. And even God cannot go back on his word. Do you realize if he goes back on Genesis 1.26 and he comes down and says, you know what? I, I know I said you guys have to me. I know I placed you guys in charge. But, but look, you guys are just messing everything up. So let me come back in and take a say. You realize if he does that. Then I can go to every single one of his promises down the line and say, well, what about this one? And what about this one? What about this about my finances? And what about this about my healing? And what about this about joy and peace? And, and, and you said that you would never forsake me. Never, are, are you going to forsake me? I mean, you, you came back and took our dominion away. So are you going to leave me as well? Do you realize that if he goes back on one word, he could go back on all of it. But I don't serve a God that goes back on his word. I serve a God that keeps his word. I serve a God that is faithful. All of his promises are yes and amen to those who believe. That's what my Bible says. So he says, let them have dominion. Let them dominate. Let them manage. Let them control. You're not in charge beyond me. That doesn't mean you can just run around and do whatever you want to do. That means you run around doing what I want you to do. 
But ultimately, they will listen to your voice, not my voice. They will listen to your voice and they will listen to my voice through your voice. So guess who gets to name the animals? Adam. Why? Let them have dominion. You've heard me say this before. If God would have created him on any other day before day six, Adam would have finished creation. If, if this statement, let them have dominion, would have showed up on day two, and we still needed trees and plants and water and land, Adam would have said, let there be, and it would have been. That is how much dominion and control was turned over to Adam. We got to understand this because you won't understand how grace is supposed to operate in your life if you don't understand what it's supposed to fix. What got broken? What got severed? What got separated? What changed? So that grace could come back and fix it. So, let's go to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, two chapters over. I said sin is powerful. I said sin is powerful. So powerful that we barely get three chapters into the book and it's already shown up. Because man was created with a free will. Man was created with decision-making capabilities. The opportunity to make a choice for himself because God is a God of love and love is not forced. Love is a choice. So if I force you to live for me and force you to obey me, that's not love. But I want to know that you really love me so you choose to obey what I'm asking you to do. So Genesis chapter 3 shows up. Verse 1, now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. God never said you can't touch it. But this is Eve's interpretation. And when you don't know God's word, you'll fall into sin. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. So their eyes are open as a result of sin entering it. In this instance, sin has just entered the world and everything that comes with it. Sin nature has shown up and sin consciousness has shown up. What's that mean? I just realized I disobeyed a command. It's recognition, the realization I've sinned. You don't have to tell a sinner that they're a sinner. They know. They know. And that's the first step to operating in grace. 
is realizing I was a sinner. You can't help people that don't want to acknowledge that they need help. Right? My name is Mark Brady, and I'm an alcoholic. All right, what's, what are we doing? We're acknowledging that we have a problem, and I need help. Right? First step. So the realization shows up. Now look at what Adam and Eve do. They sew fig leaves together. Because man will always attempt to cover themselves. <laughs> man will always attempt to cover themselves. They do two things. Try to cover themselves and pass the blame. And we're still repeating the cycle today. Lord, it was that woman you gave me. Well, it was that snake. The blame game shows up and let me cover myself. Why? I realize I'm naked. I realize I've messed up. I realize I'm not in the same condition that I was before. And notice that he, they hide. They hid themselves. Why? They realized my condition now is separating me from him. The way I was before allowed me to be with him. The way I am now doesn't. On their own. God never said, if you eat of that tree, you, will have been, you are a sinner. You will have sinned. And then I'll have to come down and take care of that. You'll need to cover yourself because you're naked. And you won't be able to be. Adam didn't come in and say, hey, what's up, God? And God said, oh, you've sinned. He said, oh, yeah, I guess so. No, he already knew. I got to hide. Because sin is powerful. Without any warning, they understood. I can't be doing the same stuff I did before. I'm not going to be able to talk to him the way I talked to him. I'm not going to be able to, to expect him to come down and walk in the cool of the day with me anymore. On top of that, my purpose has been hindered. Because God goes on and says, yeah, the very thing that was supposed to take care of you, now you're going to have to take care of it. Every day of your life, by the sweat of your brow, you're going to work. Then it all comes down. Look down in verse uh, 21. And the Lord caught, uh, nope, not 21. Wait, I was in chapter 2. 21 of verse 3. Genesis 3, verse 21. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. What's this tell us? Your attempt to cover yourself is futile, but God has a way to cover you. God has a way to cover you. And this is the first picture of grace showing up. So you can try to cover yourself, but it won't work. But God's got a way to cover you. And if you use it right, It'll work. Already. He's already putting a plan into motion. Go back up to verse. Uh, verse 14. And the Lord God said to the serpent. Why? Because 
Here's what God does. Here's what God does. God sees sin, and he goes to the source of the sin. God's getting all the way down to the bottom, and he works his way up from there. Then he goes to the woman. Then he goes to the man. But he goes to the serpent, and look what he says. Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go. You shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. What's he saying? That your seed will always be against her seed. And look what he says next. He. God gets real personal. He. Why? Because he already knows. He already knows there's someone that's going to defeat you forever. I mean, I already know this thing so far in advance. I just go ahead and let you know it's a he. 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 Will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You may get a piece of him, but he's going to crush you. He's going to crush you. He's already letting them know. And this was the answer for sin. Grace shows up. Grace. Even at the very moment of the first act of sin taking place. Eating fruit. Biting into a piece of fruit that they were told not to. They didn't murder. They didn't steal. They didn't. Adam didn't go find a, a, you know, another person. He didn't say, God, make me another woman out of this rib so I could be with someone else. He, he didn't. He didn't do any of that. He ate fruit. But it was in direct disobedience to what God had said. And sin, all that sin is, is disobedience of God's word. Disobedience of God's word. This is the way I like to put it. The one thing God hates the most entered the one thing God loves the most. The one thing that God hates the most Entered into the one thing that God loves the most. See, we can't fathom it. We can't process it in our minds. But God loves us so much that even sin entering us didn't change how he sees us. But it did change how he uses us. He still loves you. Sin or no sin, he still loves you. Becoming a Christian doesn't mean that God loves you more. It means he can use you more. See, we, we're the ones that paint this picture of sinner versus believer. And I'm in a special place and they're not. And God loves me more or God loves me differently than them. 
See, this is why you've got to learn to love people the way God loves people. We're the only ones that look at people through external. What have you done? Where have you been? How many times do you keep doing that? We're the ones that do it. God does it. God is so powerful and his love is so amazing that he's able to love people even though they carry the very thing he hates. And I'll tell you this right now. Especially with all the agenda and the, all the, the, the same-sex homosexuality stuff going on. This, I will tell you. You may hate it. You may hate that sin. You may hate the stuff that they're going through. But guess what? You don't hate it more than God does. You may get weirded out when a homosexual enters the room and think, oh, man, what a creeper. But you don't hate the sin any more than God does. And yet he still loves them. (laughs) Yet he still wants to be with them. In fact, he loves them so much that the price that he paid is still available for them. Oh my goodness, if we could get the picture of this. If we could come to know, like Paul said in Ephesians, the breadth and the width and the length and the height of the love of God. You think you hate that person's sin. Well, my husband cheated on me. You think you hate what he did to you, but God hates it more. And he still loves them and still gives them a chance. And even says this, if you'll choose me, I will choose to forget it. I won't even remember that you did that. We're the ones that hold on to baggage. We're the ones that hold on to people's past. We're the ones that do that. But man, I mean, you have to ask yourself. Look, there are people in my life that were very close to me. There are people in my life that were very close. That have stabbed me in the back. Even worse, I've seen them stab really close people to me in the back. And you know you want to step in and say, you don't do that. But I've made the choice in my life. If they ever made the decision to come back, repent, and ask for my forgiveness, we'd walk right back in. I'd shake their hand and say, let's get to work. I've made that choice. Now, you can say that all day long and then get in the situation. Of course, you're going to have thoughts going. But God doesn't. The second that you forget, you know, ask for forgiveness and repent, it's not like that thought just goes. He's like, oh, man, I can't think of that anymore. He chooses to forget. He's not forced to. But he's made the choice to forget the sin because he loves the person that much. Adam and Eve aren't loved any differently or any less after Genesis chapter 3. 
It's just that what is inside of them does not allow them to do what Genesis chapter 1 said. Just because God can't use you doesn't mean he doesn't love you. You see, that's what we associate those things. If I, if I can't use you and I can't use your gift, then I guess I don't love you. Because I want to tell you right now, God hates sin. He hates it. He absolutely despises it. He despises the sin he despises the one that makes, him, makes people sin. He despises the source of sin. He despises what sin makes people do and how it makes them think and how it makes them operate and how it makes them treat people and how it makes them talk and how it makes them feel. He hates sin. You have to understand that. After today, you have to have a better understanding that God loves the sinner, but hates the sin. We say that all the time, but I don't think we fully know what that means. Do you hate the sin and love the sinner? No, we have a hard time with that. But God doesn't. God has gotten real good at hating sin. But we have to find one way or the other. We either have to accept the person and the sin with them to really love them. Or we have to hate the sin and despise the person as well. Right? Isn't that the picture that the world has of the church today? And part of that is because the world isn't going uh, to understand. If you don't let me come to your church, then you must hate me and everything I'm about. I mean, I, I got to talk this past week to a, a man right here in town that's running for U.S. Senate. And so I just got into a, a conversation because I want to know. I want clarity. As, as a pastor, I want to know what's going on in this nation and what this agenda with homosexuality and, and, and the, the whole same-sex thing. I want to know what is being played out here. I need to know that. As a pastor, I need to know that. And he spelled it out real, clear, real clearly. Where the agenda is coming from, the person that is responsible for it and, and, and all the things that are taking place and why the federal government is overruling state legislation. The state says we don't want to legalize same sex and the federal government's coming in and saying you have to. Going on down the list. Why? Because a gay couple doesn't just want to be legalized in California, but then they come to move to Georgia and find out that they were not recognized as a married couple. So now I can't buy a house together and this person can't get my property after I die and, and blah, 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 blah. So they want every state. They want them all. They want all 50 states. And he said that they've tried to put stuff into legislation, but it has not passed yet. 
They've been unable to get it this far, but they are trying to make any kind of speech against gays and homosexualities hate speech. Which means the conversation I'm having right now, and pretty soon, I could have to pay for that. And I will. Because I'll be just like Paul and John in Acts chapter 4. Do not preach the name of Jesus. I don't know whether or not we can do that, but I do know this. That I can only do what God has called me to do. Just like John and Paul. Peter. Peter and John. Everyone wants the miracles and signs and wonders. They go and they raise up a layman, but they don't realize the consequences that come with that. Now, the government's got to say so. But this is the day and age that we're living in. And the one word that comes up every time is grace. Grace. And we just act like God's just throwing out grace to people. Here's some grace. Here's some grace. Ah, that's all right. Here's some grace. That's not what God meant for it. That's not how he designed it to operate. God hates sin. Let me show you some verses real quick. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 4. He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are justice. A God of truth and without injustice. Righteous. 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 Righteousness and righteous, that's not a Bible word. That's not a Christian word. That means to be in right standing with the authority. If you go down this road that is 45 miles an hour and you go 45 or 46 miles an hour or over, you are unrighteous. Simple as that. Isaiah chapter 45 verse 21. Tell and bring forth your case. Yet let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient times? Who has told it from that time? Have not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a just God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 13. Habakkuk chapter 1. Verse 13. You are of pure eyes than to behold evil. And cannot look on wickedness. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he? He can't even look on sin. God and sin do not mix. Second Thessalonians chapter one, verse seven. And to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Verse 8. In flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. God hates Sin. There is nothing about God that is light on sin. 
And there is nothing about God that changes how he looks at sin. God has hated sin from Genesis chapter 3, and he still hates it today. He despises people that disobey his word. Whether they disobey it knowingly or whether they disobey it without knowing. He hates sin. It's not preached enough. It's not preached enough. The grace message today makes God look like someone that turns his back on sin. That's the most dangerous message today. That allows people who think they're Christians to live like the world. That's stupid. It's stupid. Why? Because ignorance is the lack of knowledge. Stupid means I don't want to know. Or I've heard it, but I still see it this way. That's stupidity. Ignorance is one thing I haven't heard, but now that I've heard, I can live that out. But stupid is someone that hears, knows the truth, knows the difference, and still decides to live another way. God hates sin. Think about this. Think about if we had a judge. And this is the picture that a lot of people have of God. Think about if we had a judge. That every time someone comes to him that's done something wrong, even with the most incriminating evidence, we caught them in the act and the judge lets them go free. Does that sound like a just judge to you? Absolutely not. In fact, that's what we would call a corrupt judge. Constantly letting people off. And that's how we view grace today. You just go to God, he'll turn his back. And that's what I'm here to change. Because God hates sin. And this lifestyle of Christians living like sin has no consequence whatsoever is dangerous to believers. Look, I know it sounds bad, but I got to make it sound bad so you really understand how awesome grace is. Because grace is not candy that you pass out when someone messes up. There was a very high price that was paid for grace and for mercy. God does not turn his back on sin. God does not look the other way at sin. But sin is so powerful that he knew, I've got to make grace that much more powerful. But we've dumbed it down. We've dumbed it down. We've dumbed down sin. We've dumbed down grace. We've dumbed down love. We've dumbed down mercy. 
And now we sin in the name of grace. How ridiculous. How ridiculous. Let me show you how serious sin is. Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. I'm telling you, stay with me. Because this will set you free. I said it last week in our Love So High Easter service. Jesus did not come to save you from hell. I'm sorry that they've told you that all your life. But this is your opportunity to change your thinking. This is your opportunity to repent, as Jesus said. When Jesus was telling people to repent, he wasn't telling people to ask for forgiveness of their sins. He was telling people to change your mind. That's literally what the word repent means. Change your thinking. Because until you change your mind, you will not change your life. If you don't think differently, you will not live differently. So I'm asking you to repent today. You don't have to ask for forgiveness of my sins. Well, that's good too. But I'm asking you to change the way you see grace. I'm asking you to repent in how you see repentance. I'm asking you to repent in how you see grace. I'm asking you to repent in how you see the cross. That's what I'm asking you to do. Romans chapter 6, verse 23. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. How quickly he turns that around. But I want to focus on the first part of that verse. For the wages... Of sin is death. The wages, the wages, how it pays out, what you earn in response to sin is death. Let me tell you this. There are many people that have experienced death without ever dying. Say it again. We have experienced death without ever dying. What's that mean? Death is separation. I mean, when you die physically, you're separated from this earth. Your spirit man is separated from your flesh. That's literally what is taking place. There's a separation that happens for the wages of sin is death. It pays out in death. That's how serious sin is. God hates sin because apart from Him, you can't do anything, Jesus said. Apart from me, you can't do nothing. So we need to find out how to be connected to God as much as possible. But sin 
separates. Disobedience to his word. Look, it's not just between God and you. If your children disobey you, you know a separation has just taken place. You know why parents, you know why parents want their children to obey them so much, to do what they're told to do? It's because they realize the more and more you disobey me, the more and more you're severing a relationship that is a resource to you. You stay connected to me and you have everything that you need. You've got food on your table. You've got gas in your car. You've got a way to get from point A to point B. You have a roof over your head. But every time you disobey me, you are severing the relationship. God hates sin. There is nothing about God that is lax. On sin. In Genesis chapter 3 and today. God showed me this about a month, two months ago when I really started getting into this. And this will change your life. If you don't hear anything else that I've heard, you need to hear this. Grace does not change how God views sin. Grace changes how we view sin. Grace does not change how God views sin. He hated it then, and He hates it today. And the fact that grace is available doesn't put God in a position where he says, well, it's not that big of a deal anymore. But grace has been extended to us so we can see sin differently. See, before you were lost, you had a view of sin. You knew it was wrong. There were things that you enjoyed doing, but look, every lost person has things that they do that they do not enjoy doing. Can anybody relate with me? Even when you were lost, even when you didn't even know who Jesus was, who God was, there were things that... You knew were wrong and you shouldn't do and you kept doing it, but you hated doing it. And your view of sin was this thing controls me. This thing makes me do these things. And in the world without Jesus. Without God as your king and your Lord, which, by the way, let me just say this. He's always been your king and your Lord. You didn't vote him in and you can't vote him out. He is king. He is Lord, whether you acknowledge it or not. But one day you'll get on your knee and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. You might as well just do it. But he's always been Lord. Whether you made him Lord or not. 
But even then, you knew, this, I don't want this. What can help me? But then, we've had people too cowardly to preach like this. And so we thought, well, maybe I can't do anything about the sin. But if I could do something about the hell, at least I won't go there. I mean, you can tell me that I can go somewhere else after I die? Even though I've been living like this? Who wouldn't take that ride? It's damaging. This is why I have waited a year to preach this message because there's so much to there's so much you have to know. There's such a foundation. We can't just say, let's have a grace message today. I can't do that. One, because I'm very analytical and outlined and I've got to have all my ducks in a row. But two, because you just can't do that with the message of grace. You just can't. This isn't a message that people want to come running back. But I'll tell you right now, you better keep coming. Because it only gets better from here. Look, if I can make look if I can make sin look great, his grace will just look that much greater. Let let me just help you out so we can get some people smiling in here. Grace whips sin every time. Because I know what you're doing. You're replaying, man. Oh, man, God didn't turn his back on my sin. He sure did because grace has been applied. But that doesn't mean that he looks at it with a less degree of hatred than he did before. Let me just tell you this. Got to get us excited. Got to get the juices flowing, all right? Watch this. Grace has more to do with your future than it does your past. Now, if that doesn't get you on the train to come back next week, I don't know what else I can tell you. Grace has more to do with you from this day forward than it does from this day back. That's the grace of God. Grace isn't just applied to cover up your past, but you can't do anything about your future. He's gotten rid of your past so you can have a different future and a different hope and a different life in Him. Because Romans chapter 5 verse 17 tells me that grace has been applied. And if I understand the abounding grace and the gift of righteousness, I will reign in life. Sin will no longer have control over me. I will dominate it. And you know you've been waiting to hear that. You know you've been waiting for someone to preach that I can control sin, that I don't have to do what it tells me to do anymore. You know you've been waiting for that. The world is waiting for that. So why dumb it down? Why make it less than what it really is? 
Why not tell people that grace is God's empowerment so they can live differently than they did before? Why not tell people that? I don't understand. Why have we only told people that grace covers you when you do something wrong? That grace is unmerited favor, that you didn't do anything to deserve it, but it's given to you? Why have we just dumbed it down and gone with these little kindergarten definitions? Why not tell people what grace really is all about? I mean, did he not pay a high enough price? Did he not give up enough? Did Jesus not go through enough in those three days? That we can't preach what real grace is all about? This is not just a Little short-lived message on grace. This will change your life. In Romans chapter 11, verse 22, I'll close with this. In Romans chapter 11, verse 22, it says this. Notice how God is both, both kind and severe. Notice how God is both kind and severe. John chapter 1 verse 14 says that in the or John chapter 1 says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Verse 14 says and we beheld his glory. The word became flesh, Jesus. We held his we beheld his glory full of grace and truth. It's time that we stop picturing God as one or the other. Most people only have a picture of Jesus that has been handed down to them. Most people only know someone else's God. Get to know him for yourself. He is full of grace and truth. Not one or the other. I mean, in today's day and age, we have grace churches and we have truth churches. We do. What does that mean? We have some that are more accepting of sinners and sinful people and those type of lifestyles. And they don't preach as heavy. And then we have truth churches that, you know, this stuff ain't coming in the door. Because we know God hates sin. And so he must hate you too. But if you change before you walk in here, then we'll accept you. And we'll preach hard. And we'll tell you how bad it's going to be. And you'll want to go to heaven by the time we're done. I'm not joking. The United States of America, this is what we have today. We only have a picture of a kind God or a severe God. He says, notice how God is both kind And severe. He is severe towards those who disobeyed. But kind to you if you continue to trust 
in his kindness. If you stop trusting, you also will be cut off. And if the people of Israel turn from their unbelief, they will be grafted in again. For God has the power to graft them back into the tree. You, by nature, were a branch cut from a wild olive tree. By nature, because of what one man's offense, we all sin. So if God was willing to do something contrary to nature by grafting you into his cultivated tree, he will be far more eager to graft the original branches back into the tree where they belong. God hates sin, but God loves you. The first step to getting help is recognizing I need help. The first step to getting help is recognizing I need help. The first step to understanding grace is recognizing I need grace. The first step to fully understanding and understanding the fullness of grace is understanding that I need grace more than ever. Today, I hope that our eyes have been opened, that we are people that need grace. Through one man's sin, all have sinned. The Bible says in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And man has attempted to get back to that glory ever since. They've been sowing on fig leaves. But I'm here to tell you today that God has killed the calf. He's covered you with skin. He has covered you with something that will cover you forever. Something that will take away the sin and empower you to live differently from here on out. Father, I pray this morning that we come to the full knowledge, the full understanding of your grace. Father, we acknowledge that we were born into a a nature that was contrary to how you designed us to operate. We were born into dominion. We were born into domination. We were born to rule and to reign. But we have been taken on by a sin nature that's been controlling us. But Father, you paid a price. Grace has been made available to us. A grace that doesn't just cover who we were, but changes who we are so we can be everything you've called us to be. Father, we thank you for your love this morning. Your love that has never, never gone away. You've never done anything to revoke your love in our life. You've never done anything But love us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That's the love of God. But Father, there's a price that's been paid that does not excuse us and does not allow us to live according to the old nature, any longer. So today, we choose 
to recognize the work of grace in our lives. We choose to recognize the work of grace in and through us so that we can be all that you have called us to be. In the mighty name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen and amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Well, we're going to take up our tithing offering at this time. If our ushers would begin to move. Amen. If you need an offering envelope, please raise your hand real high. And our ushers will be by to uh, pass those offering buckets. We appreciate your support of everything God is doing here. Amen. We know that God doesn't need money, but God uses money. And ultimately, what he's trying to get access to is your heart. Because he said in his word that if you, uh, that where your treasure is, there your heart is also. So what are you treasuring today? Because that reveals where your heart is. Amen. But we know that God knows our heart. He sees our heart. And look, you're given today in an acknowledgement that God is my Lord. God is my source. He provides everything for me. It's easy to give. It's easy to give. If it's hard to give, then there's something on the inside that needs to be tweaked and, and taken care of. Because this should be easy. He's the provider. People that have a hard time giving are people that have their source connected to something else. It's usually a three-letter word called a J-O-B. Well, I've worked hard for my money. I've got to work to make a living. No, you don't. God never told you to work to, for a living. He said, I'm your source. He told you to work so you could influence other people. That's a message for another day. You mean I don't work for a paycheck? No. The paycheck is bonus, man. Every person you work with, every person you see, every customer, every vendor, every coworker, every employee, every employer, you make influence on them every single day you're there. And then you get a paycheck every week or every two weeks or however often you get it. Because God takes care of you. God is your source. That's the most freeing thing I've ever had to learn, that my paycheck is not my source. I know people, their goal in life is to give 100% of their paycheck to the church. Well, what do I live off of? God supplies it. You don't think he can't get money? He's walking on streets of gold. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. You don't think he's got avenues and ways to get you? To get cash flow to you? I mean, that's such small-minded thinking that the only source I have of income is the job that I go to. So then when they get laid off, the world falls apart. I mean, I used to tell people that all the time when I worked a job. Because I worked a job where they were constantly talking about shutting branches down. Or a small bank down there in Florida, a million other banks, uh, you know, rose up in the big boom of, you know, the whole real estate thing and then dropped suddenly. So now just shut down, shut down, shut down. We don't need three branches in one city. We only need one. So who's the next one to go? And I always, I, I would make them so mad. 
I'd make them so mad. I could lose this job today and I'd still have money. What? What are you, you investing? You, God is my source, man. You think he's sitting up there going, oh, man, he lost his job. Man, what are we going to do? We are stuck. No, we got to change our thinking. We got to repent. Amen. So that's why it's easy for me to give to him. 